Hello and welcome to episode 12 of the UK True Crime Podcast. I'm Adam. Today we're back in England for a case involving police incompetence, prison service incompetence, robbery, rape, drowning, murder and a good dash of conspiracy theory as well. What on earth is there not to like, huh? In December 1982, the UK pop charts were varied to say the very least. Top of the charts for one week were the excellent band The Jam with Beat Surrender, a song that has stood the test of time. I'm not quite sure you could say the same about the tune that topped the charts for the rest of the month, Save Your Love by Rennie and Renato. Remember that? In the US that month, it was Mickey by Tony Basil, one for the karaoke fans out there, maybe, followed by Maneater by Hall & Oates. It was also the month that saw Michael Jackson release his album Thriller. In December 1982, 25-year-old Clive Barwell drove his car into the centre of Bradford, which is a city 14 miles west of Leeds in West Yorkshire. Barwell was six foot tall and powerfully built, with lank, unkempt hair hanging alongside his face. It was a cold and foggy night, typical of the bleak winter's evenings that are often experienced in Yorkshire. As he pulled onto derelict land in the city, he knew exactly what he had planned for that night. He waited patiently until he saw what he was looking for, a woman alone in a car. Moving quickly, he pounced and brutally raped the 30-year-old victim. Those of you familiar with the case of the Yorkshire Ripper will know that Peter Sutcliffe lived in Bradford and he committed numerous crimes in the area. It was just two years earlier, on the 2nd of January 1981, that Sutcliffe's reign of terror had ended when he was stopped by the police with a prostitute in nearby Sheffield. As you will know, the Yorkshire police were crucified for the mess they made of the Ripper case. In 1982, the West Yorkshire force was still reeling from criticism of the Ripper inquiry and Bradford was a very sensitive area locally. Sutcliffe and Barwell, they shared the same job, they were both lorry drivers. And like Sutcliffe, Barwell, he appeared ordinary in every way. He was the second child born to his parents, his dad was a delivery driver and his mum was a cleaner who also worked behind a bar in the local pub. They later went on to have three more children. Barwell didn't take well to school and he didn't attend much. He started to become involved in petty crimes from before he went to senior school at age 12. When he did go to school, his main interest was sport, and he was a strong swimmer and a pretty good runner. There was violence in his childhood from an early age, with his dad regularly beating his mum, often in front of the children. It's also reported from some sources that Barwell was paid by his dad to keep watch on his mum, and that he then stole money from her to punish her. And then she found out what he had done, so she also beat him. Clearly, in this unhealthy family dynamic, something had to snap. And in this case, his mum eventually left the family home, taking the other children with her, but tellingly leaving Barwell behind with his father. That night in December 1982, when the distraught victim of the rape went to the police, telling them how a man had forced his way into her car and driven off and raped her, West Yorkshire detectives followed the book, doing everything correctly. They closely examined the crime site, checked the local airports, spoke to passers-by and checked the records of cars which had been stolen or abandoned that night. Their inquiries drew a blank. Incidentally, the first officer who saw the lady was Inspector Brian Jackson. 
Followers of the West Yorkshire Police Force would know the name. Yes, Jackson. He was later imprisoned for indecently assaulting young girls. The following month, on the 3rd of January 1983, the following month, on the 3rd of January 1983, Barwell was back in Yorkshire visiting his girlfriend, who is in the Leeds General Infirmary, suffering from appendicitis. As before, Barwell was looking for a victim, and in the hospital car park, his chance came when he saw a 26-year-old alone in her car. Barwell forced his way inside before raping her. Unlike before, he wasn't willing to just let his victim go to the police. Instead, he gagged her before using electric cable to tie her arms and legs, before putting a shopping bag over her head. It's hard to imagine the terror of this attack, but it got even worse as he then drove her in her own car the short distance to the Leeds and Liverpool Canal, where he pushed her into the water. For those of you familiar with Yorkshire, it's really warm in the summer, and this poor woman, she was out of her depth and struggling to breathe on this bitterly cold night, and then the bag started to fill with water. Barwell stood on the sidelines, relishing her obvious terror, but unfortunately for him, her foot came in contact with a large submerged boulder, which allowed her to push off to a shallower section of the water and escape to the opposite bank. As she did so, she could hear Barwell swearing in anger and muttering he drove off in her car, which he then abandoned and set light to in an attempt to destroy any evidence. Was he just trying to cover up his rape by stopping her talking to police? Or was he actually gaining a sexual kick from watching her drown? Years later, the victim told BBC TV's Crime Watch UK, Not a day goes by without me thinking about it. I've tried to put it behind me. But even now, I feel angry. Even a force as inept as West Yorkshire managed to realise that there was a connection between the two cases of women being raped in their cars. They knocked on over 14,000 front doors in search of witnesses, but they were unable to get the lead they needed. However, being West Yorkshire, they still managed to screw up the investigation in a major way. When Barwell had torched a car of the second victim... One local man saw what had happened and he managed to get a good look at a man appearing to walk away from the scene. However, when he reported his concerns, he felt that the police looked on him as a suspect rather than someone who wanted to to help the community over what he had seen. On this podcast, we've seen on a number of occasions that forward-thinking detectives keeping evidence has helped solve crimes many years in the future As though the exhibits can't be used at the time they're found, they're invaluable as DNA technology catches up. In this instance, although West Yorkshire police followed correct procedure in collecting DNA evidence, when their inquiries came to nothing, rather than keeping the material they collected, they simply threw it all away. It's difficult for an outsider to fathom this thinking when detectives were still fully aware that there was a rapist on their patch who had already attacked two women and was likely to attack more. They made other blunders too. Before and following this second attack, the rapist had used a stolen blue Ford Cortina. Detectives were aware that someone had stolen a car in Leeds a week before, very close by to the scene of the rape. In the Cortina, the thief had found a credit card which they proceeded to use in local shops to buy items including a a £20 Parker pen, a video game, as it was called back then, called Scramble, a shirt, alcohol and cigarettes. 
These were the days when there was no chip and pin. It was just a signature, making this kind of theft reasonably easy, unless the card had been reported stolen. It was clearly likely there was a connection between the rate and the car theft. And if that was the case, there could be a pattern in how the credit card was used, which could give detectives a clear idea of where the rapist lived, and maybe could even lead them directly to his door if he was recognised by a shopkeeper where the car had been used. Detectives did the right thing by asking for copies of 20 vouchers that had been used in making purchases with a stolen credit card. Unbeknown to detectives at the time, this was the break they'd been looking for, as one of the vouchers had actually been used to buy petrol for the stolen Ford Cortina used in the second attack. The cashier working at the garage had written the Cortina's number on the back of the voucher, as was the correct practice. However, the detective who checked the vouchers didn't notice the significance of this. They completely overlooked this vital piece of evidence, which could have led them to Barwell, and they reported no link at all between the stolen credit card and the serial sex attacker. It was not followed up or double-checked, and the opportunity was lost. I wonder how you or I would feel if someone close to us were later attacked by this man, knowing that such fundamental mistakes had been made which could have led to his capture. Fifteen months later, Barwell struck again. This time it was much further south in the county of Leicestershire, in the centre of England. He used the same technique, sitting in a car park until he saw a 20-year-old woman on her own parking her car. This is when he quickly pounced, driving her away in her own car before viciously raping her. Worryingly, with undertones of the ripper, he used his knife to cut her in her neck, her breasts and her stomach. Although the victim did report the rape to police, she could not bring herself to mention it to anybody else, including her husband, and she only informed police on the condition that it was absolutely confidential. Almost unbelievably, this lady's husband did some work for Leicestershire Police as a civilian and one day he walked into a CID room to see a board displaying pictures of his wife as a rape victim, completely naked to show her knife wounds. Let's just pause for a moment just to consider the reality of this. Utterly astonishing. Of course, the distressed husband had to discuss this with his wife, but when he did she was understandably livid that her confidentiality had been betrayed and she refused to help Leicestershire police any further. It couldn't get any worse, right? Sadly, it did. A detective inspector working for the force had taken information including pictures of her assault, allegedly using it for his own sexual gratification. Moreover, he began turning up at her home, apparently with the aim of starting a sexual relationship with her. Remember, this was a senior inspector in the Leicestershire Constabulary. Doesn't it just make you fear what else he could have got away with in the past? Fortunately, on this occasion, this disgraceful specimen of a policeman, he was subsequently sent to prison on a different charge of indecency. Due to the nature of the attack and seeing how it was so similar to the rapes in Yorkshire, Leicestershire police spoke to West Yorkshire and although they agreed to maintain a dialogue, it didn't go any further. With the same disregard for DNA as West Yorkshire, when there was no breakthrough of the case, they simply threw away all the vital evidence that was collected, whilst knowing that there was a serial rapist out there who was likely to attack again. And Barwell did just that in November 1985. Barwell's daughter was born on the 15th of November 1985. 
In Yorkshire that day, Barwell headed to the east of the county to Doncaster to find his next victim. Just like his previous attacks, he patiently waited in the car park until his 20-year-old victim arrived alone. And as she was parking her car, he made his move, depowering her and then subjecting her to horrific rape. This attack fell under the jurisdiction of South Yorkshire Police and detectives here were remarkably unable to link this rape to the three previous offences for which Barwell had been responsible. This time they at least kept the evidence, right? No. Sadly, once again, the answer is no. And when they had no success with the operation, they also just threw the material away. Two years later, Barwell raised his level of offending still further. I'd imagine at this time he saw himself as pretty well untouchable. And with these crimes that were reported, and no doubt numerous other unreported ones behind him, without so much as a knock at the door from a police force, he just felt he could do as he liked. Shaney Warren, aged 26, lived in Stoke Poges in Buckinghamshire, in the south of England. On the 17th of April 1987, she had mowed her lawn, but she didn't come back home after getting in her car to dispose of the grass cuttings. She was found dead in nearby Taplow Lake, just 25 miles from her home. Sharni worked for Microscope, a company taken over by defence giant Marconi just weeks later. Despite being found in just a foot and a half of water, with a gag in her mouth, her feet bound and her hands tied behind her back, the official verdict was, wholly outrageously, suicide. Quite how home office pathologist Dr Ben Davis reached this conclusion is pretty hard to believe. Especially when you consider he found she'd been sexually assaulted and strangled with a car jump lead, which had been used to bind her. Thames Valley Police initially tried to start a murder inquiry. At the inquest, Shani's mother made it clear her daughter was not in the state of mind to kill herself, and this was backed up by a psychiatrist who'd read her extensive diaries. But Dr Davis, who'd earlier been removed from the approved list of home office pathologists and then reinstated, insisted that this was suicide. On hearing the evidence, the coroner had little choice but to record an open verdict. So, what we're being asked to believe is that Shani had gagged herself, tied her feet with rope, then tied her hands behind her back and hobbled to the lake on stiletto's heels to drown herself in a foot and a half of water. Shortly before her death, she had just bought a bouquet of flowers for her boyfriend, which were found lying on the back seat of her car. She was planning to throw a party celebrating paying off the finance on her car, hence the bottle of champagne that was there too. The car, the brand new, shining black Vauxhall Cavalier, her pride and joy, and in the boots were the grass cuttings stuffed into black bags, which she had told her mum and dad just before she drove out on that day, she was going to take round to her uncle. It's just bizarre. To think that most of us growing up, I used to genuinely believe most of the information we heard from those in authority. I wonder how you or I would feel at such a ludicrous judgement on one of our friends or family. But here in the UK, as I guess in many other parts of the world, fighting the official bureaucracy can be a torturous process. If you take a look online, there's lots of speculation about Shani's death as part of the so-called Marconi deaths. 
The G.C. Marconi Scientist Deaths Conspiracy Theory states that between 1982 and 1990, 25 British-based G.C. Marconi scientists and engineers who worked on the Stingray Torpedo Project, another U.S. strategic defence initiative-related projects, which are better known as Star Wars, died under mysterious circumstances. Now, I'm no David Icke. If you don't know him, check out some of his conspiracy podcasts. But I do love a conspiracy theory. And the very odd nature of some of the deaths of these people, connected through their work, appears to have some merit. However, evidence suggests that in this case, there is a much simpler explanation for Shani's death. When Shani Warren was killed, Barwell was driving near her home in Stoke Poges, and also near Taplow Lake. Based on what we already know about his attack on his second victim, who he threw in a canal bound and gagged, there is every likelihood that he murdered Shani. He was never officially questioned about the murder, and once more, whether guilty or not, Barwell was able to continue with his reign of terror. It seems that Barwell's criminal activity went beyond rape, and his luck finally ran out on the 6th of November 1987, when he was arrested for armed robbery. Barwell was after money, and he didn't mess about when he decided he was now in the armed robbery business. Armed with a sawn-off shotgun, he targeted cars, including 16 from one car park in York in just one day. And just for good measure, he also robbed a number of armed security vans. To my mind, even these attacks show the level of arrogance felt by Barwell at this time. 16 cars in the same car park, when he must have known the crimes would be reported, just shows just how untouchable he must have felt. And why not? At the conclusion of his trial on the 13th of January 1989, Barwell was sent to prison for 16 years as a Category B security prisoner. This sentence was for armed robbery and his history of sexual attacks was still unknown to police. Once in the slammer, Barwell played the game. For all intents and purposes, he was a perfect prisoner, doing all he could to show that he'd learnt the lessons from his punishment and he was ready to start rebuilding his life in mainstream society. After just two and a half years, his behaviour led to his reclassification to Category C and by August 1992, he was reduced to Category D, the lowest possible security status, where he was then sent to an open prison in Derbyshire in the north of England. The official rules said he would not be eligible for home leave until a third of his sentence was complete in March 1993. The reality was quite, quite different, and no time was wasted in letting him return home on resettlement licence, which also meant he was able to find work as an electrician locally. On the 7th of January 1990, just a year after he'd been sent to prison for 16 years, Barwell was given four days leave to visit his dad who was unwell. The next evening, Barwell reverted to his usual tactics in Leeds Town Centre at Belgrave Street, where he waited for a lone woman. At around 10 o'clock, he made his move on a woman leaving her car, but this time she managed to fight him off. Later, describing the nature of the attack to West Yorkshire Police, she made it clear her attacker had used a butcher's knife and tried to abduct her. But West Yorkshire police were apparently looking to reduce their sex crime statistics at the time, 
and so this attack was downgraded to attempted robbery. This meant that the victim's clothing was never examined for DNA and nor was her car. Again, another missed opportunity. On the 14th of May 1993, at about 2.30 in the afternoon, a 23-year-old woman parked her mum's car at Broadmarsh Shopping Centre in Nottingham. As she got her stuff together before heading out to shop, to her horror a man suddenly yanked open her door, put his hand over her mouth, put a blade to her throat and pushed her across the car into the passenger seat footwell. He tossed her coat over her, telling her that if she moved he would cut her throat before driving off. Clearly terrified, she initially thought he was going to rob her and take her belongings as he went through her handbag, apparently looking for things to steal. When they stopped at traffic lights, he painfully pulled off her watch and her rings. Chillingly, Barwell inquired about her religious beliefs. When she told him she was a Catholic, he told her, you better start praying. Eventually, he headed out of the city and drove along a long, secluded gravel path where he raped her. This was a... It's just a particularly horrendous attack, where he was aware that she was terrified of his knife, and so he did all he could to cause her pain and to terrify her of the weapon. Afterwards, Barwa robbed her, making her share her PIN numbers to give him access to her bank accounts. Once he had her money he tried to kill her in the most horrific way possible. While she was tied up in the footwell, he parked out of the way while she lay naked, bound and unable to escape and he tried to set fire to the car via the petrol cap. Unsuccessful in his efforts to do so, he abandoned the car with his terrified victim inside. Despite being sent to prison for 16 years, five years earlier, Barwell was still given lots of freedom. He was by now divorced from his wife and he met the lucky next Mrs Barwell on one of his excursions from prison, this time to Leeds. Margaret Teasdale was 33 and on Valentine's Day in 1994 the couple married at Leeds Registry Office. Although technically still in prison, the two lived together close to the prison in the Beresford Arms Hotel where they both worked as managers. Barwell earned a decent salary for the time of 10400 a year and as part of his job he managed to spend three nights a week sleeping at the hotel. This beautiful romance of his new bride continued and within 12 months Margaret was pregnant. As a side note, Barwell managed to buy a car and on one of the times he drove back to the prison, one of the rare times he actually slept in the prison, he actually faced disciplinary action for parking in the space reserved for the prison governor. Like me, you're probably wondering how he managed to pull this off when at the start of a long prison sentence. The official line from the prison service is that Barwell had done absolutely nothing wrong and his lifestyle was all approved as it played a major role in helping him to resettle into mainstream society. Finally, on the 19th of June 1995, Barwell was given parole. He had spent seven and a half years in prison. Just a few weeks later, in the middle of the day on the 26th of July, he reverted to his usual attacking pattern, targeting a 22-year-old student arriving back at her car alone in a Leeds multi-storey car park. As usual, he bound his victim, but this time he had another horrendous take to his attack, 
On this occasion, he put superglue on her eyelids before driving her out of the city where he planned to rape her. This time his victim fought back really hard and so he gave up, leaving her bound and gagged in her car. When she was finally found by a member of the public, she told them what had happened, as she did to one of the paramedics in the ambulance who took her to hospital. Both of these people, knowing they were potentially crucial witnesses, made notes of their conversations with the lady, but the delaying officers from West Yorkshire Police promptly interviewing these witnesses and we're talking months here, it wasn't a few hours, meant that all this information ended up being destroyed. Amazingly, when a detective from Nottingham Police heard about the case and made contacts due to the similarities to their unsolved crime, a detective from West Yorkshire Police made it clear they'd no time for their theory and told them exactly what they could do with it. Stop interfering, but not in such polite terms. Nice. Despite the mistakes made by detectives in this latest attack, this is where Barwell's lucky run came to an end. As usual, he'd gone through the victim's handbag, but this time he'd left a fingerprint on the envelope. Even better was that while his victim fought him off, she'd drawn blood from Barwell, and a trace of this was present in the car. In January 1996, forensic scientists made the vital connection between attacks by matching DNA in the semen from the attack in Nottingham with the blood sample from the car in Leeds. They now knew for sure that the attacks were by the same man and they finally started to work together to catch the culprit in an operation known as Operation Lynx. This was led by the head of Nottingham CID, DCS Phil Davis. Progress was quickly made when they started examining other unsolved rapes. They linked three of the previous attacks, including the one in Leicestershire. Officers from the Leicestershire force also joined the team. Operation Lynx was a major undertaking, and this was the largest inquiry since the search for the Yorkshire Ripper, bringing together 60 officers from the West Yorkshire, Nottinghamshire and the Leicestershire forces. West Yorkshire Assistant Chief Constable Lloyd Clark said, We are dealing with someone who is cool and sadistic. Those women who he's attacked cannot forget what happened, and nor will we. We owe it to them and all women to catch him. This man is a danger to women. DNA via saliva samples was taken from 2,177 suspects with a history of sex offences. But of course, Barwell didn't appear on this list as he'd never been caught for a sex offence. They ran the fingerprint they had from the last attack in Leeds through the automatic fingerprint recognition system. Barwell's prints were contained in the database, but they didn't have a full print, so again, they weren't able to track down Barwell. To make this even close to manageable with such a large prospective target group, detectives looked again at their offender profiles. It was here they hit another issue, as Barwell had left a trail of false clues in his attacks. Once more, we we can't help but go back to the fruitless search for the Yorkshire Ripper, when detectives convinced themselves they were looking for a man with a Geordie accent following that hoax tape that was sent to detectives. Was Barwell using this information to throw police off his trail? I think he was. With Barwell, he'd purposely driven badly when actually that was his job, he was a good driver. Although a Yorkshire man with a Yorkshire accent, he'd affected a Scottish accent. He spoke about being a Catholic, when he was in fact brought up as a Protestant. 
and he talked angrily about his dark-haired wife as a blonde bitch. This meant that the first fingerprints examined were Scottish men with connections to Leeds, but nothing was found. Next, they looked at men in Leeds who had stolen cars, but this was unworkable, as there were thousands of men with convictions. Officers from the team appeared again on Crime Watch, which led to over a thousand calls being received from members of the public. Unfortunately, none of these calls produced the breakthrough needed. On this appeal, they added the murder of Shaney Warren and two other rapes into the total picture. Now, this led to detectives from the Thames Valley and South Yorkshire forces joining what was now a huge investigation with 180 police officers from five different police forces. They got through a tremendous amount of information. We spoke about the 2,000 plus saliva samples taken. In addition to this, a further 9,345 men were checked and excluded from the inquiry. Detectives raised 24,324 actions and entered 33,628 names on their computer system, which was more than the Ripper inquiry and the highest in the history of British policing. In August 1996, Kim Rosmo, a Canadian detective inspector from the Vancouver Police Department, the VPD, was contacted by Operation Lynx. Rosmo had developed geographical profiling, a method of tracking serial criminals which used data about the location of the crimes. The area of the crimes in this case and related incidents was 7,046 kilometres and the police had over 12,122 suspects. Operation Lynx clearly needed Rosmo's help. The method often relied on a crime analysis programme called Rigel, which estimated the area where an offended live based on the crime locations. Rosmo, who'd founded VPD's first geographic profiling unit in 1995, had a growing reputation after he helped to solve a number of murders and rapes, including some in the UK. Rosmo recalls, Initially, I thought that geographic profiling would be of limited use there. I only had data related to the five rapes, which isn't enough for an accurate analysis. However, using the locations of the Leeds crimes and purchases... Rosmo calculated a geographical profile using Rigel. It highlighted two areas, including the Milgarth and Killingbeck districts. Both of these districts had police stations, so the investigation initiated a manual search for a fingerprint match at the two locations. Unbeknown to detectives, Barwell lived in Killingbeck. His mother lived in Milgarth, and he used to visit her on a regular basis. Finally, the breakthrough came. On March 19th, 1998, after 940 hours of manually sifting through more than 7,000 prints, a specialist arrived at just one name, Clive Barwell. Barwell was eventually caught after police matched his fingerprints, which had been taken after a shoplifting offence committed back in 1982. Barwell was arrested by officers the next day and remanded in custody, initially facing 17 charges. Operation Lynx was a test case to see how Rosmo's methods could be used here, says Spencer Cheney, who's a research associate at the Gildando Institute of Security and Crime Science 
at the University College London. After that, pretty much every serial criminal case you read about in the media, from the murder of Millie Dowler to the case of the Suffolk Strangler, has involved geographic profilers. When arrested, Barwell was a father of four who worked for Leeds-based haulage company Arthur Brownridge and lived with his partner, Alwyn Wakefield, his 12-year-old daughter and his four-year-old stepson. As we know, he had two children from a previous marriage. Neighbours in the quiet cul-de-sac where the couple lived said the wife was attractive and bubbly, but Barwell kept himself to himself, with little to distinguish him. As we said before, he was just so ordinary. The only thing that did set him apart was his clothing, which was almost military in its neatness. While Barwell was waiting for his trial, the woman he tried to burn to death in Nottingham gave birth. She commented that this happy event marked the end of one chapter of her life and the beginning of a new one. In October 1999, 42-year-old Barwell appeared at Teesside Crown Court where he pleaded guilty to three rapes, one attempted murder, four kidnappings, one serious sexual assault, one indecent assault and one assault occasioning actually bodily harm. These offences related to attacks on four women over a 15-year period. The judge, Mr Justice Henry Davey, ordered that charges of kidnapping and rape in Leicester in 1984 and an attempted kidnapping in Leeds in 1993 should lie on the file after Paul Worsley, prosecuting, told the court that in order to prove Barwell was responsible, all the women he'd admitted to attacking would have to give evidence. He said that reliving their experience would be a terrible ordeal and it would just not be right to put them through that. The two women concerned had been contacted and agreed to those charges lying on file. The judge also ordered that not guilty verdicts be entered on charges of false imprisonment and indecent assault on a woman in Doncaster in November 1985. Dressed in a t-shirt and tracksuit bottoms, Barwell showed no emotion as he was found guilty and giving eight life sentences. Passing sentence, the judge recommended that parole was not considered for Barwell until he had served at least 11 and a half years. He said, Clive Barwell, you have pleaded guilty to extremely serious attacks on four women. You kept them in their own cars and you raped them and you indecently assaulted the fourth. You threatened to kill them and apart from the courage and presence of mind of the fourth woman, you would undoubtedly have killed her. I've no doubt in the light of what I've heard of the facts of this appalling case this morning that you are a dangerous, dangerous, calculated, cunning and chilling rapist. Three of Barwell's victims who were in the public gallery to see him sentenced broke down as he was led away. Lloyd Clark, the Assistant Chief Constable of West Yorkshire Police, said, We are delighted by the way the whole team in Operation Lynx worked. I was pleased with the outcome of this, not just for myself and my team, but for everyone from other agencies that have put an awful lot of work into this. The victims are uppermost in our minds, their courage is outstanding. Hopefully today we have drawn a line under their suffering. He refused to link Barwell of any unsolved crimes, but added, We now have to stand back and review our position. I'd be very surprised that if sometime in the future we did not want to speak to Mr Barwell again. I suggest that it's hard to listen to the self-congratulation around the work of the police in this case. Sure, they found their man in the end, but this whole case doesn't reflect well on the UK police forces involved.
When Operation Lynx reopened two cases, they would no usable scientific evidence at all to work with. The first woman had produced a photo fit of her attacker, but West Yorkshire Police lost it. South Yorkshire Police made no link between this and Barwell's other offences. They failed to make any progress at all of the inquiry and lost or destroyed every single piece of evidence and every single piece of paperwork from the case. When Operation Lynx finally solved the crime, they had to go to the files of the local newspaper to get a contemporary account of the victim's ordeal. It is hard to believe that Barwell was not responsible for the death of Shiny Warren, or that there aren't other victims just unwilling to come forward. But to this date, he's never been charged with any other crimes. Thank you for listening to this week's edition of the UK True Crime podcast. Please head to our website at uktruecrime.com, sign up there for our newsletter, hear about our exciting plans for the year, or go to iTunes and leave us a great review. Until next week, bye for now.